If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue a series on the kingdom, and we're continuing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, As we've looked at the kingdom, what we are focusing in is on living as a kingdom citizen. And uh, if you're a believer in Christ, you become a part of the kingdom of God, how then are we to live? And Jesus, on the most famous sermon ever, took three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and gives us some understanding about living as a kingdom citizen. We talked a couple of weeks ago about what was called the Beatitudes. Those were the first 12 verses. And there were eight different qualities to where it says, blessed are. And when it says, blessed are, it meant that God approved God's favor for those who were poor in spirit, et cetera, et cetera. And so it looked at what we did, we looked at the character of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And then last week, Chad talked about the influence of a kingdom citizen, looking at salt and looking at light. And so today, what I want us to do is we're going to move into a new section where it talks about the conduct of a kingdom citizen. And this will carry us all the way, probably up through November, and, uh, and to where we're looking at different things about the conduct of a kingdom citizen. You make a decision for Christ, you're to live for him, what does that mean and what does that look like? And so today we are going to, uh, the sermon title is A Demand for Superior Righteousness, okay? So I don't want that to go over your head, we're going to break this down and um, it's going to cover really all of chapter 5 over the next few weeks, this demand for superior righteousness. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, I want to read through what we will be covering today. And it starts in the 17th verse. And Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 21 says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. Now, the last penny. Now, the first point that I want us to talk about is that Jesus differentiates ceremonial righteousness and superior righteousness. And I need to write this down because everything hinges on this point and on this verse. Rarely do I ever preach a sermon where I kind of start in the middle of a passage, but I feel like we need to. We're going to start in verse 20, okay? Starting in verse 20. Now, when you look at verse 20, 
He says, now you understand, uh, and I like what Michael's saying is, is can you imagine sitting there uh, or standing or sitting there at the mountain while Jesus is seated and he's teaching and you're hearing the Son of God begin to teach these words. If you're a hearer there in the first century and you listen to these words, this verse really kind of throws you for a loop because it says in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness does not exceed the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? Well, if you had to put it one phrase, they're kind of the God squad, okay? They're the God squad, folks. They, uh, they love the law, they love the commandments, and they want to keep the law and keep the commandments, and they want to keep every one of them. But what they discovered is that when the Bible gives you a commandment, something like the Sabbath, and it says that on the Sabbath that uh, you are to keep it holy, and that six days you work, and on the seventh day you rest, so they began to think, you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. So what is work? What is a burden? You're not supposed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. So what is a burden? So they began to describe what is a burden on the Sabbath. And they made all these lists. These are some of the things that they said. They said a burden would be if you carried food that was equal in weight to a dried fig. Now, right there, that takes out your drive-through at McDonald's. I mean, there's no way you can get a Big Mac and a fry and a Coke because that's a whole lot heavier than a dried fig. They then came back and they said, you can have enough milk for one swallow because if it's any more than that, it's a burden and it's work. You can have enough ink in your pen so that you could write two letters of the alphabet. Wouldn't it be terrible? I mean, you're trying to text, you can't even text your BFF. It's just a BF, you know? Your OMG is OM. Uh, I, I mean, that, that's it. Because anything beyond that is work and it's a burden. And they ate this up. And they came up with 248 laws and commandments, another 365 prohibitions. You add it all together, it's over 600 things. And they discuss this and talk about it. And their goal was to keep every one of those. And when they kept every one of those, they did this because they wanted to be righteous. And that was their measurement of righteousness. And everyone else sits around there, knows the Pharisees and how committed they are. And then Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you'll never get into heaven. Well, right there, everybody else sitting there says, well, we're, we're done. There's no way we can exceed what those guys are doing. But you see what Jesus was talking about was a different kind of righteousness. And see, for the Pharisees, their righteousness was just an outward compliance to their own rules and their own regulation. And it's interesting that with all these rules and regulations, you would think that they were making it harder, but actually they were making it easier because what they did was they took the law and then they broke it down into these little bite-sized chunks that they could try to keep. And it kept the demands of the law from piercing their heart about what the true intent of that law was. It was a whole lot easier to hear a law and then break down about 10, 12 things and say, okay, if you do these things, then you've got the law covered. And it was more manageable and would insulate them from anything piercing their heart, anything convicting them. And so they were content to obey the law outwardly without allowing there to be any change in their heart or in their attitudes.
They could keep the rules and they'd be self-satisfied. They had their religious checklists and they would go through and they'd check all those things off. It's what we would call ceremonial righteousness. It's just an outward righteousness, just a ceremonial righteousness covering all the bases. You know, it's easy for that to happen today for us. Ceremonial righteousness. Attend church, check that box. Go to Sunday school, check that box. Go on a mission trip, good stuff, check that box. Quarterly contribution statement comes in. Open it up, take a look, doing good. Check that box. Help out in the community. Want to get involved in community project, whether it be in Vestavia or Hoover or wherever, try to jump in, get involved in the community. That is great. All of these things, these are good things. But yet what we can do is say, this is my righteousness. And so I feel I'm doing a really good job for God because I'm doing these things. Ceremonial righteousness, it's all on the, on the outside. I, I had lunch with a church member this week and just in the midst of discussion, he was telling me about his father. And he said that his father pretty well checked all those boxes off. And, uh, and he was a good man, good in the community, and uh, would go to church every so often on there and felt everything was right. But somebody confronted him. Somebody confronted him and had said that, have you made the decision for Christ? Have you turned your whole life over to God? And he just didn't think he needed that. He think he'd covered all these bases and, and he, he, he understood God, but this, you know, this Jesus, this faith, grace, all that stuff, he just, just couldn't handle. And he went through all of his life with his son and other people sharing with him. And finally, as he got close to death, he came to the point where he understood what the gospel was and he made the decision for Christ. And that church member said, my dad, if somebody had not confronted him, would have gone and he would have died thinking that he had all this righteousness and he was going to spend eternity in heaven and he would have spent eternity in hell. But somebody confronted him. And he finally got to that point where he understood that his righteousness was not enough. It's only the righteousness of Christ that can do this. And so what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is talking about a new kind of righteousness, the one that will penetrate your heart. The Pharisees were into a quantity. Jesus was into a quality of righteousness. It's a righteousness that operates from the inside out. It's a deeper righteousness, a righteousness of the heart, a superior righteousness of mind and motive. And is exactly what the, uh, what the prophet Ezekiel said years before this. And he said in Ezekiel 36, 27 through 28, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, I will pour my spirit into you. And what Jesus does, he pours his spirit into our life and we receive his righteousness. And this righteousness of the heart is only possible through the Holy Spirit who regenerates and indwells us. That is why entry into the kingdom of God is impossible without righteousness that is superior to the Pharisees. The Pharisees have a ceremonial righteousness. It's just an outward righteousness. What Jesus says is you've got to have righteousness from the inside. You have got to have a righteousness that only God can give you. And he says, once you have that, then you can enter into the kingdom of heaven because you have accepted Christ. And when you've accepted Christ, his Holy Spirit comes into you. And then these changes began to happen in your life. But because you made that commitment to Christ, 
you're able to have entryway into the kingdom of heaven. So right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is already laying the foundation for grace. Already laying the foundation for salvation by grace. And he's letting them know it's not just all these outward actions, but it's through grace. And those are the demands, okay? And when you, when you see that and you see what Jesus says, nobody expresses it better than the Apostle Paul. So if you can hold your finger there in Matthew and turn over to Philippians chapter 3. And for many, this is a, um, this is a familiar scripture, but Philippians chapter 3. When you get to Philippians chapter 3, we've read it, you've heard it before, but listen to it in this context. We've just talked about the different righteousness, ceremonial righteousness, and a superior righteousness. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. In verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. I was one of those Pharisees. I was doing all those, those prohibitions, all those things, all those rules. I was keeping all of those things. And he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He said, it's not just all this ceremonial righteousness, but it is Christ. And so I would just start right there and say, every one of us, we just need to stop for just a moment and do an inventory in our own lives and find out, are we just doing the ceremonial righteousness? Are we just checking the boxes? And for some, you've never made a decision for Christ and that's how you're living your life. And you're good in the community and you show up at church at times and you're nice to your neighbors and everybody likes you at your work and you're thinking that when the scales come out as to good stuff, bad stuff, that all your good stuff's gonna be here and that when eternity comes about, when you die and get ready to step into eternity, that you're gonna be able to go right into heaven and right into God's place because of your righteousness here. And that is just false. Because we are sinners separated from a holy God. And it has to be the righteousness of Christ for us to be able to come into his presence. And so my challenge to you today is to say, boy, I do not want to continue to go down that path. I want to get that relationship with Christ and I want to make that decision for him. All these things you've been doing, they are great. You continue to do them. You just need to keep them in perspective. And in some of us as as believers, we've accepted Christ. He's in our heart but we're not letting him really penetrate our heart. And so the things that we do just don't mean as much and we're not as close to him, but we're checking boxes. Take all those things that were boxes and begin to pray about that and say, God, go deeper in my heart and let me see the reasons for these. Affect my motives, my mind, my attitudes. And may God make a change in our hearts today. Let me tell you the second point here. As we're looking at this, Jesus' demand for superior righteousness, Jesus has the authority to demand a superior righteousness because he has fulfilled the law. See, some of you could be reading this and you say, well, what gives Jesus the right to say these things? How, How can he say that? How can he tell 
the Pharisees, it has to be a greater righteousness. Well, he has the authority because he has fulfilled the law. Look what it says in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus was speaking from authority. He was speaking such authority that people had never heard before. Now, this is like a spoiler for the movie, but at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you turn over a page and you get to chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when he finishes the sermon, look at the response. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He taught as one that had authority. I always wondered, what was it about it that gave him such authority? What was it that when he spoke, people said, whoa, that's authoritative. Well, during that day, most rabbis did not use first person. They would use third person, second person, we, they, you, uh, quote someone, quote scripture, but they wouldn't use I, that authority. In just verses 17 through 26, There are four times when Jesus steps up and says, I say to you, look over here, just follow with me in your Bible. Verse 18, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother. Verse 26, truly I say to you, I mean, He spoke like no one had spoken before. And he spoke with authority. He says, I say to you, I say to you. And they go, whoa, we've never had anybody talk to us like this before. And when he started talking like that, some people began to think, well, man, he is thinking that he's above the law, above the Old Testament that we have today. And so Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And he fulfilled the Old Testament. You say, well, how did he fulfill the Old Testament? I'm so glad you asked because I've got four things. You can write these down right here. And Tuesday at lunch, somebody's going to ask you, hey, how did Jesus fulfill all the law? You'll have it right there, okay? Write it down. You ready? Number one. Number one is this. He did it because, number one, he lived up to the intentions of the law by living a perfect life. He lived up to the intentions of the law. The law was laid out, and it says this is how we are to act. And Jesus is the only person all of history that lived a perfect life. So he lived the whole thing. He, he, he lived up to the intentions of law. He lived a perfect life. Number two, he fulfilled prophecies. You know, some have stated there are about 332 distinct prophecies that he fulfilled just in the Old Testament. Prophecies about Christ that he fulfilled. So he fulfilled the prophecies. Number three, he died on the cross to satisfy the demands of the law. He died on the cross to satisfy the demands of the law. All throughout the Old Testament, it talks about a sacrificial system and how you take an animal, put the sins on that animal, and that animal is sacrificed and the blood is shed. All of that pointed to Jesus. All of it pointed to him. And so when he goes to the cross, he is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. He takes all the sins of the world. His blood is shed. His life is given to cover your sins and mine. And number four. His interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures completes and clarifies God's intent and meaning. It's a lot of words. We'll leave it up there for a minute, all right? His interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures completes and clarifies God's intent and meaning. This is what you're going to see this week and also uh, next week and then the week after that. 
to where Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said. What that means is God has put his word here and then people have incorrectly interpreted it. And so what Jesus does is he clarifies the Old Testament. And so he's not questioning the Old Testament. He's just giving you a clarity in interpretation. Because some people were put, uh, leading them in a wrong direction, misinterpreting Scripture. And so Jesus fulfills the law by coming to clarify it so everyone will know it. Bottom line, he fulfilled the law in the sense that he himself was the object to whom the law pointed. Everything was pointing to Jesus. And so he says, I've got the authority because I fulfilled the law. And then he gives you a shout out on the authority of the Old Testament in verse 18 when he says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Iota is a Greek word for the Hebrew letter Yod, which is the smallest letter. So he says, it's the smallest letter. And then he says, or a dot. That's just like if you took almost like an apostrophe. It's like a little whoop, little swoop on the end or so. Not the smallest things you could see. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest of small will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And what he said of the Old Testament, it is authoritative. It is inspired by God. It is, it's an authority. It's the word of God. And he says, it will not go away. It will stay until heaven and earth pass away. So if, he, if everybody ever comes to you and says, well, you know, I like that Jesus in the New Testament, but I'm not really crazy about the Old Testament. That's not a good thing. The old and the new go together. The old was inspired by God and the old is, 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 continues uh, to be authoritative, inspired, and it'll be that way until heaven and earth pass away. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That one day when Jesus comes back, it says, the old things will be passed away. And it says that, that we will have a new heaven and a new earth and righteousness will dwell there. And when righteousness dwells, we'll no longer need the law because we don't need it to point out sin because there won't be sin. There will just be righteousness. So he says, Old Testament comes all the way up until that time happens. Okay. All right. Number three, Jesus defines greatness in the kingdom of God. When he's talking about all the superior righteousness, he then hones down and he defines greatness in the kingdom of God. Verse 19 says this. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, you, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that means to loosen the commandments hold on our conscience and on our attitudes and our life relaxes it. Doesn't mean, I love the way you use that word. It doesn't mean that you say, hey, I don't like that commandment anymore. It's just that when I read that, I just kind of relax on it. It loosens its grip. I'm not as convicted about that. And so I, I'm just going to live my life kind of the way I want to. And I still believe that, but I'm going to be a little bit of hands off from it. And he said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you read that verse, it's talking about people who are believers. So it already says you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. You know, you'll be in heaven. All right. You'll spend eternity with God. 
But there's some that'll be least and there's some that'll be greater. And he said, the least are the ones who relax the kingdom, who relax the commandments. And not only that, but they'll also teach others to do the same thing. But greatness in the kingdom of God belongs to those who are faithful in doing and teaching the moral law of God. It makes a difference in your eternal rewards. And it's, I like the way it says doing and teaching. You have to do it in order to teach it. You can't be teaching people about, well, this is, this is how you obey this when you're not obeying it in your own life. And so he says to be greatest in the kingdom of God is to be doing and teaching. Now, I think that's a great balance that we always need to maintain is that, yes, we are saved by grace. But yet Jesus says that there will be levels within the kingdom and the greatest in the kingdom will be those that obey and those that teach others to obey. So we can't just get the grace ticket and ride that grace train and say, I'm just going to ride that grace train to heaven, not worry about how I'm going to live my life. No. His challenge is, is that you accept him by faith. You accept by faith through grace and have Christ come in your heart. But then you need to live that life out. And not only live it, but then to teach others. And that's where parents teach their children. That's where you share with others that are around you. All these type of things. It's where you're sharing it with others. Okay? All right. And uh, what happens is, is he finishes that statement. He sets up a foundation for the demand for superior righteousness. And for the remainder of all of chapter 5, he then gives you six examples of superior righteousness. Six examples of things that you have heard, but I want to tell you what God means about that. And it will give you a superior righteousness that surpasses even the Pharisees and the scribes. And so as we close today, we're going to look at real quickly at one of those. And that's verses 21 through 26. And that is that Jesus describes superior righteousness in relation to anger. Anger. Anybody here ever been angry before? Got any folks that are angry? See, some of you are angry because you haven't been angry. Okay? So um, everybody, we, we've had the anger thing going on over here. Now, verse 21 says, you have heard that it was said. Remember we talked about that? You have heard that it was said. So when he says that, he's getting ready to go a little deeper. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That is the sixth commandment out of the, out of the big 10. That is number six. You shall not commit murder. Okay. He says, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Now, with that command, as we look around this congregation, I'm going to step out and say, I think 100% of us are in good shape on that one. Now, if you need to do some confession, get with me afterwards. I'll be more than glad to talk to you. But I'm thinking that most of us can feel really confident when we see that one, we go, hey, I got the murder thing down. Okay? You shall not commit murder. I'm doing pretty good on that. There's a few things I wanted to strangle someone, but I'm okay. All right? I'm doing, I'm doing okay on that. When that. But see, Jesus says, well, listen, we're going to go a little, little deeper on that. And he says in verse 22, and see, you shall not murder. That's kind of your ceremonial righteousness there. Here comes your superior righteousness. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It's getting a little strong there. Now, he says that you're not to be angry. Now, but I, let me just understand right here. Not all anger is bad. Because, see, some of you would say, well, didn't Jesus get angry? And he went into the temple and he turned over the tables with the money changers and everything. It is acceptable to be angry over sin and injustice. I mean, God gets angry over sin and injustice. It's okay to be angry over that. It's what we call like righteous indignation. And there were times when he got angry at the Pharisees because he was healing someone on the Sabbath and they so misunderstood what it meant about resting on the Sabbath that they got, they got mad at Jesus and got mad at the person that was healed. And Jesus got angry over that. That's fine. But see, most of our anger is not over sin and injustice. Most of our anger is when somebody has hurt us. When somebody has done something that we have been offended. And when we get offended, we begin to get, get angry. And sometimes we can even couch it and saying, I'm angry over this sin and injustice, but really we're not too much angry over that. We're just angry because somebody offended us. And that bothers us. And what happens is we begin to brood over it. And then as we begin to brood, it begins to, begins to grow and grow and grow on there. And it builds into bitterness against someone. Anger can be a dangerous emotion because it can leap out of control and it can cause great harm. And you know that. And that was every one of us. We've been angry. And when you got angry, you said something you wish you hadn't said. Don't raise your hand. Just wink at me. Has anybody ever said anything that you wish you hadn't said because you were angry? That's good. Either you got something in your eye or lots of folks are winking. I thank you. Yeah. You say, why did I do that? You said things you wish you didn't say. Physically, you may have done something you wish you hadn't done. Maybe out of anger, you pushed someone down or you hit somebody or did something. You say, oh man, I wish, wish you hadn't done that. See, what Jesus says is, he says, this thing here, we talk about murder. Let me drive it down even to the motive and to the attitude and to the heart issue. He says, the heart issue is, is that you're not even supposed to get angry. And, and he gives you three different things. He talks about insults and, and, and on here in, in the English Standard Version, it talks about insults. Your uh, version may have the word raka. It's a word that means everything from a blockhead to a jerk, an idiot. Um, I mean, it's, it's just mean words that you say to somebody. And Jesus is just multiplying the point by bringing these three things out. And he says, this all adds up. And I just got to know that uncontrolled anger is a sin. You got to deal with it. And so superior righteousness is when you understand that, I've, that it's not just murder up here. That's terrible. But it's the attitude. It's the motive. It's that heart issue of anger. And he says, if you've got that, he says, you got to deal with that immediately. And he tells them a story. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. They know exactly what he's talking about. 
During that day, a worshiper going to the temple would bring a sacrifice because there was sin in his life and he wanted there to be forgiveness of that sin. So he brings this sacrifice and he walks through the temple and you have to go through different areas. You go through the court of the Gentiles and you go through the court of women. Then you go through the court of men until you get to the court of the priest and there's a railing there and you can't go there. But there's a priest on the other side and you take this sacrificial animal and you place it to the priest. And as you place it to the priest, you then put your hand on that animal. As you put your hand on the animal, you in essence are saying, Lord, the sins that are in my life, and at times you would even enumerate it, the sin of this and this and this. I take that sin and I place it on this animal and I'm pleading for your mercy and for your forgiveness. And so you've taken that sin, you've placed it on that animal, and then the priest will take it, sacrifice that animal, and the shedding of that blood is the forgiveness of your sins. And what he says in this illustration is someone has done every bit of that, and they got right to that point where they put their hand on the animal, and they realize that somebody's got something against them. And they know exactly who it is, and they know exactly what they said. And they also know that the hand on this animal is not conveying that sin. It's some other sins. And he's got something sitting out there that he's got to deal with. And Jesus says, let me tell you what Jesus does not say. Well, just go on and cover the sacrifice, get that done, shake hands with everybody at church, go through the rest of the service. And then when you get some time next week, see if you can kind of get it in your schedule to go by and talk to that person. No. He says, leave your offering right there. Leave it. I mean, it's just like, well, I got to go. He says, don't pray about it. Don't question about it. Don't go through your mind and say, now, was it their fault? Was it my fault? Uh, Should I wait for them to say something? It says in here, they've got something against you. They've got a grudge against you. And that's because you've done something wrong. And you need to be reconciled with that person. He says, do it right now. Because you need to get reconciled with them because anger's building up in them and bitterness is going to build up between both of you. You got to deal with it now. He says, you go, you be reconciled. But what's great is once you get reconciled, what are you supposed to do? Then you come back and you complete it. So he's not saying this is an excuse for you not to do your worship, not to give your offering. No, just set it aside. Run over there, get it dealt with, then come back. And then say, God, please forgive me for this. And I have reconciled with my brother on there and cover everything on there. He says, you take care of it and you do it immediately. You do it immediately. And he comes back in verses 25 and 26, comes quick terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. If somebody's taking you to court, you owe him some money or whatever. I tell you what, while you're walking in the courthouse, you better come to terms with him right now. Let's work this thing out. Because guess what? If it goes to a jury trial or whatever, you're going to be guilty. You're going to be spending all your days in debtor's prison. He says, get it dealt with right then. If you had anything going on where there needs to be reconciliation between somebody else, somebody that you know that's got a grudge, got some bitterness, harboring some things that, that you have done, he says, you just need to go and get that dealt with. And go on and do it now. That's superior righteousness. Now, see, a Pharisee would never get that deep. What they would say is, thou shalt not murder. I ain't killed anybody. I'm doing good. Jesus says, if you're going to be a a citizen of the kingdom, 
you got to get superior righteousness. And that is when the righteousness of Christ comes into you and begins to convict you of these things. And let's get these things dealt with. Let me give you just three things to write and we're done. Are you ready? What are you supposed to do about this? Number one, you cannot be right with God until you are right with others. You cannot be right with God until you're right with others. Remember Jesus, they said, what is the greatest commandment? And uh, he says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. God says there is a vertical and a horizontal dimension to these, to this relationship, to this life of Christ, to being a kingdom citizen. And you cannot be sitting in the pews and just saying, ooh, I'm worshiping God, I'm here every Sunday. And yet you've got people over here that you have got all kind of turmoil with. What God's word says is let's get that vertical and horizontal relationship worked out, Okay. Uh, number two, our worship will not be accepted unless we do all we can to live peaceably with others. Our worship will not be accepted unless we do all we can to live peaceably with others. And that just means that needs to be our emphasis is that we want to serve God with all our hearts, but at the same time, I want to live at peace with others. Will there be times when people uh, kind of get crossways with each other? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. But if I continue to have the mindset of I don't want that to linger and I want to go and do this, I want to get it straightened out, God's going to honor that. He's going to honor that in our worship. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have, would not have listened. You know, sometimes we wonder, why is there a barrier between us and God? Why do my prayers seem ineffective? Why do I sit down and read my Bible and I read a devotion, and yet it just seems like everything is silent in heaven? It's like this barrier between me and God. If you feel that way, I think the great thing is to take an inventory and say, is there something where I've got something against someone? Maybe there's some relationship that's not right, God, and I got to get that squared away because what it's doing is just kind of clogging up the tube over here, and I want to get that, that opened up so that I, I get that, that great relationship with you, Lord. I want to have that relationship with you, but there's something going on back here that apparently is out of kilter because everything else is just not right with you. And there used to be times when I did a devotion in the morning and I just like felt the power of God all over me. There were times when I would sit and I'd pray and I don't care if it's five minutes or 50 minutes. I just felt the presence of God. Now I pray and just like don't feel anything. Could be that I've got to be reconciled. And let me tell you number three, it's our duty to seek reconciliation when we have injured others. Whenever we've injured someone else, it's our duty to take the step and to reconcile. So as we look today, we think about superior righteousness and get our base understanding, separating ceremonial righteousness from superior righteousness and saying, God, as a citizen of the kingdom, I want to live the life that you have set for me. And today, what I want us to think about is relationships and reconciliation. Are there things that are brooding in me that are causing me anger because of some relationships that are out of whack? Do you want to continue like that? Or do you want to take the step and say, let's reconcile? Because see, I don't want to keep doing this. 
I don't want to keep having this ceiling I keep bumping up against when I'm trying to worship God. And God's trying to get my attention. And I think this is what it is. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus' words and I thank you for the sermon. And the sermon that he preached speaks to us and it speaks to every one of us in that there are always going to be times in a person's life where they kind of get sideways with someone else. And Lord, it's our prayer that during this service at this time, if there's some things that are interrupting that fellowship with you that are caused by things that are causing anger and bitterness and brooding, that you would bring that to the surface to each person here. And may they act on your words, the words that say immediately. And may this week be the week that they get this thing taken care of. And I pray then, Lord, that the channel will be open and the blessings of you will flow into their lives and their relationship with you will be richer and more beautiful than ever before. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.